Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. There is no activity, no ministry of Jesus more misunderstood than the healing ministry of Jesus. It is an area that is constantly controversial, misunderstood, an area where heresy and misunderstanding can creep in. In fact, I'm not sure anybody has all the answers in this area. Anybody that comes down hard-nosed and says this is emphatically the way it is, is probably wrong. Much of what we understand and much of what we believe is a matter of interpretation and trying to stay close to the Scripture as we can. But we can't even fathom and understand John 3.16, how God could love the world that He'd give His Son. So it's going to be a little difficult for us to understand all the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. But this morning and then tonight, we're going to deal with this matter of healing primarily out of this end of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. As we work our way through Mark's Gospel, we're going to deal with verses 29 all the way through verse 45 to 35 tonight. And there are really two extremes that are happening. One is the extreme of denial, that God doesn't, wouldn't, can't heal. That somehow that all ended at the time of Christ. And yet I could sit here and give you account after account after account of people in this church, people on the mission field, people around the world, that God has touched their lives in the physical realm. The other extreme is demanding. And that is the extreme of demanding that somehow God owes us healing. That it is a part of the atonement. And it is if you consider that when we get to heaven, we all get new bodies. But it's not if you think that it's healing on demand. And so I want us to look at Mark's gospel realizing that when Jesus healed, it took a word or a touch, but that when he paid the price for our sin, it cost him his blood. And here is one who rushes through almost the life of Christ, and yet he emphasizes the compassion of Christ more than he does the actual physical miracle. The first instance that I want us to see is the case of the fever. Verse 30, Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to him about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. That word for fever has its root in the word fire. The eastern doctors would say that someone had either a small or a great fever. Luke records that this was a great fever. It was a chronic and a severe fever. They had come home expecting to have dinner on the table, and at the the time, Simon's mother-in-law was sick. It was a problem, a severe problem, and he came to her and raised her up. The sense of that is that it was immediate. There was no recovery. There was an immediate restoration of her health she immediately got up and began to wait on them. 
Now, it's interesting to note that this little word, wait on them, is the same word that the book of Acts, Luke translates that word, deacon. It is diakonos. It is not to imply that that Simon's mother-in-law was the first deacon. What it is to say is that she had the spirit of service. The word means to raise dust by hastening. She hurried to serve them. She hurried to meet their needs. I find that interesting because what it means is, is in the book of Acts, when they began to look for people who could be deacons, who could fulfill the role of a deacon, they looked for men who were humble enough to serve the way women were relegated to serve in that day and in that culture. They looked for men who had the spirit of service, who were willing to go unnoticed and unrewarded. That was the qualification for the deacon. That word is only used in the Gospels to relate to women and to angels. Only when we get to the book of Acts does it begin to include an office in the church and a role in the church. Simon's mother-in-law was healed and she waited on them. Secondly, there's the curing of the many. And when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Here we are, it's after sunset on the Sabbath and the multitudes have come. They've come to Capernaum. Capernaum was a flourishing city on the Sea of Galilee. And the word, when it says that they came and they brought to him, the the word literally implies that there was a stream of people, a constant flow of individuals who came into the presence of Jesus to seek healing. Now, they did not come because they loved Jesus. They did not come because they thought Jesus was the Messiah. They came because they were sick and they needed a physician. They came because they wanted healing. There's never any indication that these people came into the presence of Christ saying, we love you, we have faith in you, we believe you are the promised one of God. They just wanted to be healed. There are a lot of people who come to Jesus that way. It's amazing how... Religion for many people is nothing more than a crisis affair. That they all of a sudden get close to Jesus in a hospital or in a prison. And yet it is interesting to me that Jesus did not disappoint any who came that day. He did not rebuke them because they didn't believe in him. He did not turn them away. He did not disappoint them. He healed all who came to him that day. Now, Mark distinguishes between two groups. He says that those who came to him that were demon-possessed, he cast out the demons. That those who came to him for diseases, he healed them. That word healed means to effect a cure. It doesn't mean that he treated them. It doesn't mean he gave them medicine. It means that he effected a cure. Now, I find it interesting as I study the healing ministry of Jesus that very often when he would heal somebody, he would tell them, don't tell anybody. Now, that's pretty hard if you've been healed, isn't it? The reason is, is Jesus did not want people focusing on him for for the healing ministry, for the spectacular, for the miraculous. He wanted the focus of his ministry to be on his preaching. 
That is in quite a contrast to the faith healers of today. It burdens me when I see people who have been led to believe that they have not been healed because they don't have enough faith or because they, don't, uh, they have sin in their life or for some other reason, and it's always their problem. The faith healers get a crowd and they play on people's emotions, and yet people leave faith healing meetings still not healed and still dying and still sick. Ray Stedman says, there are healers who go around advertising their healing campaigns and trying to bring out the crowds on that basis, emphasizing the spectacular. You see nothing of this in the Bible. The physical healings were played down. They never advertised them. There is no record in Scripture of people giving public testimonies to increase crowds or people being zapped by the power of God or any of the theatrics that we see so much of today. These are totally unbiblical. If I want to believe in healing, then I'm going to believe it the way Jesus did it, not the way we've misconstrued it in our society. The truth is that even when Jesus does heal us, it is a temporary blessing. For all of us are going to die someday of something. It is appointed unto man that once he's going to die. Every one of us, unless the only reason you're not going to die today is if the rapture comes. That's the only reason. Every one of us is going to die. So healing is nothing more than a temporary blessing. We have in our culture made it the spectacular and the end of all our faith. But I won't promise you, everybody that gets healed dies. Everybody. That's just a fact of life. But there was the curing of the many. And Jesus wanted to keep his focus on his preaching that he came to seek and save the lost. That's what he was there for. Now, thirdly, there's communion with the Father. This happens about 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, that's the only thing that I, I really have a problem with about Jesus is he was a morning person. He was exhausted. He had spent the Sabbath preaching and healing and ministering. And this account is, is recorded only in the Gospel of Mark, and I want to begin in verse 35. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also. For that is what I came out for. And he went into their synagogues throughout Galilee preaching and casting out the demons. I don't know if this arouses any interest in you, but it did in me that here's Mark, the, the fast-paced account of the life of Christ, and yet he is the one who singles out the fact that Jesus got up early in the morning and spent time with his Father. This is not a prayer time of intercession for other people. This is communion between Jesus the Son and God the Father this is a time for him to get along with God, for him to refuel spiritually. Now, he had already shown and displayed his power to men. He had displayed his power in preaching in verses 21 and 22. 
In verse 23 through 28, he displayed his power over evil, over the demonic. In verses 29 through 31, he displayed his power over sickness. And what this passage tells us, Mark inserts it for one reason, to say there was a source of power. The source of power was his fellowship with the Father. All public ministry is undergirded by prayer. In a revival I was in this past week, somebody said to me, he said, boy, you preach that sermon with a lot of power. I said, you could preach with power too if you had as many people praying for you as I've got praying for me. You see, behind public ministry, there has to be prayer. You and I are only as effective in public as we are in private. Our public life never rises above the level of our private life. Now, we may can put on the front for a while, and we may can fool a few people, but ultimately everything boils down to what we are alone with God. And so Jesus is alone praying. Well, I identify with the disciples because it says Simon and his companions hunted for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. You see, I'm a lot like Simon Peter and the disciples. I can just kind of get comfortable and relaxed in my relationship with the Lord, and I wake up one day, and he's moved on. He's doing something else. He's going in another direction. And I still thought he was back here. You see, Jesus had gotten up 3, 6 o'clock in the morning. About 7 o'clock, the alarm clock went off, and Simon reached over and realized that Jesus wasn't there in the room anymore, so they went out hunting for him. Can you imagine the panic? They thought Jesus was there with them. But in reality, he had moved on. How many times do people sit in churches thinking that Jesus is with them, but in reality, he's moved on? He's doing something else. He's gone in another direction, and they've missed him. But Simon, I love Simon because he's just one of these high-D people. I mean, he just, he's always got a plan. You know, he's going to be the public relations agent for Jesus. He comes to him and says, Jesus, you're a hot ticket. Boy, everybody in town, you are the talk of the town. In fact, the early edition of the paper had your picture on the front healing all those people. It's incredible. Everybody's talking about you. They want us to rent the high school stadium and have you come for a big healing crusade. Let's get out there and do it, Jesus. I mean, let's ride the wave of popularity. Let's make this thing go as far as we can go. I mean, you've got the crowd behind you, and we're moving, and I've got the plan. I've already got the arrangements made. I've got the sound system ready. I've got everything ready to go, Jesus. Let's just move out there and get it. And Jesus said, let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby in order that I might preach there also. Boy, now, don't you know that disappointed Simon Peter? Now, when you're so hot, when things are going so well, why would you want to go somewhere else? I mean, let's, let's play this out to the hilt. But Jesus wanted to go somewhere else. Now, this little instant, when they leave and go and he begins to preach in the synagogues in Galilee, probably covers several months. But Jesus moved on and on and on. In fact... As you read it and as you study it, any time Jesus began to draw people and people began to come solely for the miracles, solely for the healings, he would move on to another place. Why? Because he says in verse 38, the last part, for that is what I came out for. What did he come out for? He came out to preach. He came out to preach. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching 
to touch the world. I don't know why he's done it. We've come up with all kind of fancy methods and gimmicks and, and tools and things that we add to and say, this is going to take the place of preaching. In fact, there's a movement across America that says that by the turn of the century that preaching is going to be obsolete. Well, if it is, then the Bible is going to be obsolete because God has said that by preaching, men hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, that may sound foolish to us, but God has always done things that seem foolish to men so that the glory would not be in men, but the glory would be in the gospel. Number four, there's a cleansing of the leper. And a leper came to him. Boy, I, I love this story. A leper came to him, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, first show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Now this is the only specific miracle that is recorded on this preaching tour that he's doing in the synagogues of Galilee. And I think it is interesting that he pulls this one out. It's not saying it's the only one that happened, but it's the only one that Mark pulled out to record for us. Why did he do it? Because leprosy was the most feared disease of its day. It was the AIDS of its day. People were fearful. They lived in deathly fear of what would happen with leprosy. There was no disease that created a stir like leprosy. Matthew tells us that this healing of this leper took place immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. G. Campbell Morgan said, All disease is ultimately the result of breaking of law. But I want you to hear what he says. But this doesn't mean that every person suffering physical disease is suffering on account of his or her own personal sin. Such disability is a result of the breaking of the law of God somehow or somewhere. In healing the sick, our Lord never violated the true order of life, but rather restored life to its true order. Now, there are some characteristics of leprosy. Leprosy exists in some three million people today. The island where my father served during World War II, the island of Tinian, which is in the Marianas Islands, is now a leper colony. Several thousand lepers live there, isolated from the world, separated from everybody else. We have had in the past the Southern Baptist missionaries who have worked in leper colonies. It's still a feared disease. It has no social boundaries. It has one of two forms. It attacks the nerves. The most common form attacks the skin. That's the form that is found the most often in the Bible. The earlobes begin to thicken. The nose begins to thicken. It is swelling in the extremities of the hand and the feet and the eyes. The body gets ulcerated. Fingers and toes can fall off after a period of time. And the disease lasts about nine years before it ultimately brings death. The disease is feared because in the old days and in biblical times, they thought that leprosy was a stroke from God 
because of sin. Obviously, you're a bad sinner because God struck you with leprosy. Now, those are some of the characteristics. The consequences were Leviticus chapter 13 and 15 tells us that when a person was found with leprosy, they were cut off from their community, they were cut off from their family, they were treated as if they were dead. In fact, they had to wear little bells and tassels around themselves and they had to shout out as they walked through a town or as they walked along a road, they would have to constantly shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean. It did two things. First thing, it said, pray for that person because they're a sorry person. And secondly, it said, stay away from them because they have leprosy. The word unclean immediately brought the thought of leprosy. Now, the law said that you had to stay six feet away from them. There was a circle, and the leper couldn't come within a six-foot circle of anybody else. But if you were downwind from them, you had to stay 100 feet away. They could not get close to anybody. In fact, if they violated the law, they were whipped with 40 lashes. The characteristics and the consequences were that these people lost all identity with anybody else but other lepers. Now, see, here's what happened. The law was powerless to cleanse. The law could pronounce a man unclean. If he was healed of leprosy, the law could pronounce the man cleansed. But the law could not heal him. It took the life of Jesus coming to earth to bring healing to these people, and Jesus came before the man, and the man came into his presence and said, If you will, you can make me clean. He appeals to the will of Jesus. He's not making any demands on God. He's just saying, If you desire, if you want to, you could do this. I have no doubt about your ability. You ever thought that maybe that's why we pray sometimes, Lord, heal me or heal so-and-so if it be your will? Now, here's what that means. If it be your will doesn't mean that you're trying to twist God's arm. What it means is you submit the case to God and you leave the results with God. The man came up to him and said, Lord, if it's not out of line with your purpose for my life. If it doesn't violate some plan that you are working out in my life, then you can cleanse me. This man had great faith because he said, Lord, I, I know you can do this. And in fact, he had such great faith and such belief in the ability of God to heal that it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. He was burdened to relieve the misery. There was a pained feeling as he saw this leper. And in a moment, Jesus reached out and touched him and healed him. Notice it says he stretched out his hand and touched him. Divine holiness brought divine healing. Now, you must remember, you weren't supposed to touch a leper. That would make you unclean. But Jesus didn't just reach over and just... Barely touch him and say, okay, you're healed. Boy, I hope I didn't get any of that on me. Jesus, the word touch means that he literally latched onto him and he grabbed him. Now, you've got to know that a man who has suffered with leprosy, that a man who has had no physical touch, no affection, no warmth, has been isolated from society, your sanctified imagination has got to tell you that that man also reached out and touched Jesus. 
Jesus grabbed hold of him. He latched onto him. He clung to him. And immediately the man was healed. He was healed of the disease. And Jesus said, you are cleansed. Here we are with incarnate purity touching the unclean. I think today about what we are dealing with in our society. The front uh, cover of Newsweek magazine this week was a whole article on teens and AIDS. We are dealing with a fearful disease. There's not a person in this room that hasn't thought about what would happen if I got that. Fear enters into our heart. It overwhelms us. We have all kind of regulations and laws now for how doctors and nurses treat things and using gloves and all kind of precautions that nobody thought about ten years ago suddenly have become standard procedure. Hospitals have certain ways of dealing with people who have AIDS or are suspected of having AIDS. Even funeral homes have certain procedures that they follow with somebody that they suspect of having AIDS that maybe they don't suspect anybody of having AIDS. It's a frightening disease. It is increasing in incredible proportions. Now, we could sit here all day long and talk about what's wrong, and we know it's wrong, and we know the lifestyle that has brought a lot of that to bear, but I want to tell you something, folks. The three- and four-year-old children and the babies that have AIDS because their parents lived in sin are not to blame for their problems. And the people who have died and are dying because they got bad blood from just taking a simple blood transfusion are not to be blamed for their problem. And they're not to be held at arm's length and distance away and say, no, no, we, we can't deal with you. We can't touch you. They're not at fault. And after all, Jesus did say, even for those who are at fault because of an ungodly lifestyle, Jesus did say to the, in the book of Revelation that you're right in hating sin, but you're not right in hating sinners. We are supposed to love sinners. I can hate the sin that brings the disease, but I cannot hate the person because he's a person or she is a person that Jesus died for. And the church is going to have to address this issue because it's going to affect us. It is going to affect us. We cannot avoid it. We cannot live in isolation. Too many things have happened. There's too much about it we don't understand. All I know is that if that man had had AIDS instead of leprosy, Jesus would have reached out and touched him and healed him. Why? Because he believed Jesus could do it and it moved Jesus' compassion, and he did it. He cured the leper. Now, one of the things you need to know is that Isaiah prophesied that one of the characteristics of Messiah was that when he came, lepers would be cleansed. One of the ways that we would know that Messiah had come was the curing of leprosy. There had not been anyone cured on record of leprosy since the time of Elijah. Do you remember when John the Baptist was discouraged and he was in prison? He sent his two disciples and he said, are, are you the Messiah or do we look for another one? Jesus did not say, tell him I'm the Messiah. Jesus said, tell him lepers are being cleansed. The curing of the leper. Now, I want us to end this morning and then we'll pick up here tonight in what I believe is going to be a very significant service that we'll have here tonight. And I hope that you'll not miss it. 
because we have planned and prayed and we're asking God to do something tonight. Not in the realm that most people think about healing, but just something unique and of the Lord and hopefully as close to being biblical as we can possibly be. I want to look at the causes of sickness very quickly. Number one, you can be sick because you break natural or physical laws. If you don't eat right, if you don't rest well, if you don't have a good diet, I mean, if all you eat is, is Twinkies and Nutty Bars and, and, uh, and those kind of things, and, and then don't expect your body to be healthy. We break natural or physical laws. John Stratton, who's a pastor in, North, in uh, New York City, said, The physical breakdowns I have had have come as a result of overwork or neglect of the health laws a wise God has provided. I wrecked my health by wrong diet, hasty eating, thoughtless habits, and failure to exercise. We violate natural, physical laws. It's going to contribute to the possibility that we're going to get sick more often. Secondly, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, and in Mark, chapter 9, there is demonic sickness. The demonic can impersonate physical and mental illness. Now, this is rare. You don't see a lot of this. They're not demons under every rock. We've talked a little bit about the demonic in the the last message that we had in the Gospel of Mark. But there are cases when someone is affected spiritually and thus they're affected physically. Demonic sicknesses. Number three, there's sin and disobedience. People can be sick because of sin and disobedience. You remember in 1 Corinthians, they were sick and some of them even died because they came to the Lord's Supper table with sin in their lives. That's why it is always a serious statement when we say, well, we need to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Because when we come to the Lord's table with sin and, and sickness of sin in our lives, then we bring defilement to the body of Christ, and God judges that seriously. God sometimes uses sickness to chasten us because of our disobedience. And so one of the things that you need to ask yourself, if you've been sick because of sin, then you need to ask yourself, Lord, what are you trying to say to me out of this sickness? What, what point are you trying to make with me? Number four, physical deterioration. Now, the only way you're going to avoid that is to die young. I don't remember exactly, but I remember in biology class in college, they said that by the time we're, what, 21, 22 to 23, somewhere around in there, our cells and our body quits reproducing itself at the rate that it does up until that age. In other words, we really start dying about age 23, physically. Now, if you exercise and take good care of yourself, you may extend that a little while, but ultimately there's physical deterioration. Now, some of you that are younger, you remember going to your grandmother's house, and she said, oh, oh bursitis, and arthritis, and fleabitis, and itisitis, and... You thought, golly, man, these people, what is wrong with them? And then you got closer to 40. And all of a sudden you got up and said, oh, bursitis, and arthritis, and fleabitis, and tennis elbow, and golf shoulder, and this and that. And the other. I mean, 
we deteriorate. That's why we start wearing glasses. That's why we wear hearing aids. That's why we get bald. That's why we turn gray. That's why a lot of things happen to us. I told the early service crowd, I said, you know, physically, I've got everything I had when I was 20 years old. It's just all dropped three inches. <laughs> my chest is now in my drawers. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, we deteriorate. We just fall apart. We get older. There are things that hurt on my body now that I didn't even know existed 10 years ago. And I can almost look back and remember the day when I got out of bed and all of a sudden it's like my body said, guess what, pal? It's never going to be like it used to be. I mean, now even the bottom of my feet hurt. Bottom of my feet have never hurt. We've got a massager. I bought it for my back. Now I'm using it on the bottom of my feet. Never had headaches. Now I have headaches. I mean, I'm, just, I'm falling apart. I'm surprised I'm standing up here. <laughs> Physical deterioration. We just get older. This body was not made to last forever. God's going to give us a new body. He's going to make all things new. Number five. It's the way God gets some of us to heaven. Some people die in accidents. Some people have tragedies. Other people die through sickness and illness. It's the way that God gets some of us to heaven. He's got to get us there. And if we're going to die, then one of the ways we have to die is by illness and sickness. Number six, it's for the glory of God. John chapter 11 verse 4 says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. Now, here's two things that can happen for the glory of God. A person can have a sickness for the glory of God for two reasons. One, it could be that God wants to provide an opportunity to do the miraculous. God may want a church to pray. He may want a person to, to go deeper with Him. And so He does something in the physical, physical realm that gives an opportunity for God to do something miraculous. The second thing is, God could put us in a hospital and give us a sickness because there's somebody there that he wants witness to and he knows that you're the person that needs to contact them. It may be that God's got somebody to share the gospel with. I, it amazes me. Uh, the people in our church, several of them that have been struck with cancer, and you know what they do when they go for chemotherapy? They sit out in that room with other people that are going through the same battles that they're facing and they talk about Jesus, and they talk about grace, and they talk about hope, and they talk about life beyond the grave. I want to tell you something, folks. Suffering was not eliminated from the Christian life when you got saved. And it may be that God allows some people to suffer for the glory of God. I believe that's the explanation for Manly Beasley's life. God allowed him to suffer for 20 years so that in his life and in his suffering and in his sickness, the glory of God could be revealed in such a way that nobody yet can explain it. Chuck Colson wrote in Christianity Today, April 3, 1987, after undergoing cancer surgery, he said, My suffering provided some fresh insights into the health and wealth gospel. Had my faith become weak? Had I fallen from favor and thus gotten sick? No. After four weeks in a maximum care unit, I came to see it as something else. 
During my nightly walks through the hospital corridors, I realized how arrogant health and wealth religion sounds to people who are suffering. Christians can be spared suffering. Oh, but not little Hindu children. They've got to go blind. One could not blame the Hindu or the Muslim or the agnostic for resenting or even hating a God of health and wealth. God does not witness to the world by taking his people out of suffering, but rather by demonstrating his grace through them in the midst of pain. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.